There's a reason why the 2% of viable decent, you know, the, the decent wheat growing area now is increasingly in uh, Central Eurasia um, and into Eastern Europe. So Ukraine, Russia, some degree Kazakhstan. Um, that's because of climate change. That's where the most viable fields are going to be. But that's, I mean, even with Ukraine, it is like 2% of the world's wheat, right? It's actually not that much. Why then is this causing such a spiral? And that's because Ukraine's excess wheat is what feeds North Africa. It goes mm-hmm. in through Egypt. Egypt used to be the breadbasket of all of Europe. Because of a variety of policies adopted in the middle to late 20, uh, 20th century, including the Aswan Dam, um, Egypt is no longer able to produce enough food even for itself and has went from being a net food exporter to a net food importer. But what it still has is all of its initial processing infrastructure, bakeries and whatever for processing this massive amount of wheat that it's been buying from either Russia or Ukraine. And then shipping it off as a finished product to North, Central, uh, and parts of East Africa. Um, and, and this is where we, we get into the discussion of, uh, of value change uh, within agriculture itself. Because people think uh, wheat production is the farmer out there making, you know, growing it, uh, reaping it, selling it on the market, making the money. And then that's kind of where the value is produced, quote unquote. And then. It, to a larger sense, that's true. But where the actual money is produced, where the profits are produced, um, is is farther upstream in all of the various different ways that that food is then engineered, transported, uh, first bought on commodity markets by Cargill or by Bunge or by Archer Daniels Midland as these sort of major brokers that exist. But then, of course, processed and turned into you know actual food items that go all around much of the actual profits being made and much of what um is being protected uh by you know by capital is these very lucrative chains exactly like you're talking about in egypt that exist in many many different places across the globe yeah so these chains exist where they do for logistics reasons they exist where they do for historical reasons um they exist in a lot of different places and they come up in weird ways like one of the one of the reasons why in the united states for example uh california is so important and in in the the economy other than the fact that it's like the the second hub of the rentier economy it's also the hub of the agricultural economy why well because well there's a couple reasons one is no one monitors water correctly in california weirdly in like I remember they weren't metering rural water usage until like fifty, uh, until like five or six years ago. Yeah, I mean it's that with like antiquated eighteen fifties laws about who actually gets the water or is mm-hmm. supposed to be getting the water to begin with, built on a hydrological infrastructure that was kind of that was pulled together in this Promethean way in the early twentieth century, right? Uh, in order to to create what was basically like stepland, essentially, yeah, uh, turn that into the most productive agricultural region in the world and diverse as well, right? And because it has microclimates, it's hyper diverse. So California has all these weird microclimates that that exist in other parts of the United States, but do not exist together in other parts of the United States. So you can concentrate your workforce in a couple of areas grow many different kinds of things, particularly if you're willing to burn through nitrogen fertilizer to do so. Now, nitrogen fertilizer is going to be harder to get soon um, because one of the things that creates its posh ash 
Now we get our potash from Canada, but most of the world gets their potash our from roots and Russia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, um, urea-based fertilizer, of course, being tied to natural gases, uh, also mm -hmm. huge out of uh, out yep. of Russia as well. So, like, people think that when the sanctions regime came down, people thought, "Oh, well, this will this will simply isolate Russia from the world economy." The world that's been built, as we know, I mean, you've listened to Varn and I talk about this plenty. Uh, independently and together, the world that we've created, this globalized world, uh, is such that it's impossible to take one of these little dominoes out and expect many, many other things not to start falling. Right. And and Russia's node in this has been as a chief um, materials exporter um, that has to do with decisions going all the way back to to people not really I'm going to defend Khrushchev, which is probably going to make me unpopular with everybody. But Khrushchev uh, was arguing that Russia had an immense amount of, of uh, physical resources, which is mm -hmm. absolutely true. It is oh, always yeah. – it, it is sort of like – it is a mineral basket and can be a bread basket for most of the planet. Um Alongside the United States, I mean, the two have very similar developmental histories when you talk about pristine right. lands being taken over and like the process of a capital capital accumulation also arising at the same time as state capacity. And so you have like uh, the, this immense ability to just transform landscapes and, and things of that sort. I interrupted you, though. You were talking about California. I, I don't know. Oh, yeah, we were talking about California getting into Russia. It's hard. There's so yeah, much. It's hard not to. I know, I know. But California is our example of this. Most of the United States has a lot of uh, viable agricultural land, particularly if you are, I mean, dumping fertilizer on it. But one of the things that you have, like people have to realize is that like a lot of European crops had trouble taking here, not because our soil is bad. It's actually the opposite. Mm. Our soil conditions here were over rich for a lot of, um, for a lot of European crops that evolved for a much more lean environment. And so, um, and we have weird eating habits. So one of the things about that is we don't grow a lot of sorghum anymore. We could, mm. um, it's useful in a lot more ways than say stock corn. Um, but we have these weird microclimates that we're holding on to in California that don't make a lot of sense outside of the fact that it's very centralized into many different kinds of production. Get and the labor done. aspect that you talked about is super important is like, is to be able to, to get a migrant labor force, super cheap and exploitable, pack them all into one place, but also have them uh, able to do a variety of different tasks, different crops at different right. times. That's a, it's a, it's a, it's an economy of scale basically on like hyper exploited, uh, agricultural labor right which is why stuff like the back to the local food movement was never going to work in the united states because because to to do that at cost at level uh would not be profitable there's no way i mean again 
there's plenty of Marxists who get all up in arms when you talk about the declining rates of profits, but the declining rates of profits in real commodities, particularly in food, is well documented and understood even by bourgeois economists. Mm. Which is why there's so so many absolutely anti-market state subsidies and support for agriculture, the ruling class having learned its lesson, I wouldn't say in the 1930s, but by the 1930s, right. about what an unregulated uh, food regime looks like, food production regime looks like. Basically, Not to mention... I mean, yeah, like, right. I mean, like the the Dust Bowl was a was a human tragedy. It was an economic tragedy. It was also, of course, we're talking about large swaths of central of the United States being wiped out, the topsoil flying away in the 1930s, kind of on top of the Great Depression. But also, you know, in terms of land use and land re um, reclamation, uh, in terms of different policies for allowing fields to lay fallow, um, you know, there's massive technology and state-based technologies at work here, ensuring that essentially not not so much anymore that everybody has food all the time, because we're going to talk about this move from just-in-case just production of food to just-in-time production of food. But at least that um, price supports, uh, whether up or down, are in effect. Uh, cartelization has also obviously been essential to this process of creating large, basically, commodity brokers and also you know, farmer cooperatives in order to rationalize what is otherwise a very uh, irrational market. And um, of course, too, like paying farmers not to farm, doing things yeah. like biofuels, which takes uh, a surplus of corn and turns it into fuel in order to... Well, the, the, the first food crisis that we have had until 2015 worldwide was when we decided to to use so much ethanol in um uh gasoline actually and which one was that what what year was that 2007 really okay that was a, a mixture of inflation from oil futures back last time gas was five dollars a gallon people may remember that this is not the first time um the end also because we started pumping ethanol into gasoline and it converted huge tracts of crops into ethanol production. Um, that's still a problem. I mean, we're, we'll get to like what, why, why part of the reason why the United States is still going to have a lot of food in instability, at least in pricing. Part of these are these international markets and speculative markets that we're engaged in that are super liquid and super lucrative, even if they're low yielding as far as their, rates of return on investment uh the other thing that it that that's a problem is that we mandate so much of this stuff be used for bullshit mm. um ethanol uh the ethanol subsidies and and uh gasoline which biden has increased recently um it does not remove carbon from the atmosphere at all in fact if you count the fertilizer going in to produce the ethanol actually it actually releases more carbon in the atmosphere than just going off traditional gasoline at least from most studies it's a little bit unclear because we're going on secondary knockoffs effect but i know almost no environmentalist now who thinks that it's actually efficient Right. Um, because the argument for at least uh, the green environmental argument for it is that it it, it it still remains within the carbon cycle. Right. So mm -hmm. I think Brazil is is really effective 
at turning sugarcane into a form of ethanol that, that can be burned. And because it's so efficient in terms of, you know, what's being produced, what's used, and then what's coming out the other end, maybe they're at the realm where they're like remaining within the carbon cycle, not adding or taking away anything to it. Mm -hmm. We all know, of course, uh, what fossil fuels are, which is the, the built-in millennia-old uh, carbon that we're spewing into the uh, atmosphere that was probably meant to stay there at least from a uh, ecological standpoint. So yeah, the point is, is that there's green arguments for the ethanol, then there's economic arguments uh, for it as well. There's geopolitical ones, right? Because mm -hmm. there's an argument that, oh, we can make this at home within our own borders, even though we make a ton of oil and gas now too, because of fracking, it's just that most of it ends up getting exported because of our stupid refining capacity. Well, I, was about, I was about to say, we have this weird situation where we don't have a lot of refining capacity, despite the fact, and, uh, and we'll go into this more in the future on other stuff. Uh, we now spend a ton of energy getting energy out of the oil that we produce because most of the oil that we produce, regardless of where it's from, whether it's from shale fracking or from low oils in the in the Gulf, Gulf is getting dirtier and dirtier. Mm -hmm. Which means um, more energy put into the refining process. So the so, good, yeah. the good cheap oil that was easy to refine and didn't have to have too much uh, labor. It takes or four boils, four barrels of crude to produce one barrel of usable oil. That's actually significantly higher than it used to be. Right. Um, another thing that we have to think about that though is like, has anyone wondered why U.S. has given up on the Middle Eastern Empire? Now, for people who thought that that was blood for oil. They don't really understand. I, honestly, that left talking point from 20 years ago is one of the dumbest things I've ever well, like we invaded because Dick Cheney was a yeah, former exactly. executive at Halliburton and was right. personally going to profit from it and looking at all the senators and what they're invested in in oil as though there's a sort of one-to-one -one sort of corrupt practice that brings right. trillions of say, dollars to bear of like American military there hardware. There may be something to regions. the... Uh, to the Dick Cheney uh, Halliburton thing, but not the oil part of it. Like if anything, what that war did was totally destabilize the oil market. Hence, if you guys wanted oil, driving oil up to $5 a gallon, which is what the uh, Iraq war eventually did is stupid. Hmm. Um, what that was about is a bunch of things, including things that we can't quantify and can't know. But part of it was trying to secure oil futures, mm. not oil itself, and doing that by manipulating the market. Um, the United States has many factions, though. And so, for example, there's a popular conspiracy theory on the left, for example, that the CIA told... Uh, the Saudis in 2014 to pump a bunch of oil to destroy the Venezuelan and Russian economy. Um, I hate to say there's no evidence for that, but there's no evidence for that. It also hurt the U S economy. Mm -hmm. um, the, there is some evidence of some collusion between the States, between Saudi Arabia and the United States on this, but Saudi Arabia's goal was not just to do what we wanted it to, it was also to fuck the Iranians. Right, um, yeah. So, like... And not to mention, when you talk about cartelization, right, oil and gas, fossil fuels is hyper-cartelized, like hyper-geopolitical hyper in a way that most other commodities aren't, honestly. Because, uh, like, as you said, it's it's this 
if we go back to our Andreas Malm, it's this sort of lubricant to value production. And it's it's just as important not for America to have uh, the supply itself, like ExxonMobil have it. It's important to dominate that market in such a way that like American interests are upheld in general. You know, upholding the market itself is an American interest. Yeah, I mean, that's what's about to say. That was this whole thing I was about very beginning we slipped up and said it wasn't in u.s interest to uphold uh to subsidize um social democracy in europe but through through guns basically and ensuring trade and i my think is like no it actually is in our in our bourgeoisie's interest to do that it's not necessarily in everybody else's yeah this um, is the real problem when you talk about agency right and right. anytime talk about any of these fucking ghouls is that you know there's no one-to-one correlation between our as working class people's interests and what the bourgeoisie wants especially of course as the american bourgeoisie large fractions of it anyway have been much more outward looking uh than right. inward looking for decades now yeah and i i think that's there is frustration with that, and you see that in this renationalization. But let's go into the food stuff a little bit because, it, it, yeah, when we get into these things like oil, you get to see similar things in food. But the food production being internationally streamlined that sounds good at first. <laughs> um, yeah, it's relatively new. Um, Before we we go too far in, and I probably should have done this at the at the very top, like. Why this stuff is important is obviously because it's important to know the world, know the context in which everything's happening, understand the political economy of this, the history of it, somewhat the geopolitics of food and food production. That's important, too. But also rhetorically, or at least like analytically, it's important because what you're starting to see now, I've seen this a lot uh, coming out of the real wackadoodle, right, but kind of bleeding farther into regular sort of conservative talking points is a conspiracy version of this where uh, George Soros or Bill Gates or the World Economic Forum um, are basically using this food crisis as a way to put forward their globalist plot. And then all of these different fires that have been happening at aging facilities for food around the country, around the world are now being highlighted by these people as like saboteurs going in and destroying our food production so that the globalist UN single global currency people can come in and make you own nothing but like, uh, but be happy. Um, These are, this is with global warming, uh, with this food crisis, with the coming crises in general, it's really important, I think, for for all of us, uh, people who are Marxist, people who are communists, to be able to come up with a persuasive way to argue against that, to talk about this systemically, talk about this in terms of political economy and class power. Because otherwise, all of these random things happening, all these fast-hitting news events, all these rolling sort of crises end up seeming to appear to so many people as part and parcel of some plan, right? Right. I mean, and there's a lot that goes on to that. Leftists are not, unfortunately, immune to foolish conspiracy thinking. Mm-hmm. And some of the, and the problem that you have is that in some of this, there is something like a conspiracy going on, but it's not a bunch of globe. The idea that the Davos men have that much power has always just amused me when I when I like look at what they actually do. I know. Um, but 
we do have to deal with the fact that in 2005, um, undernourishment fell dramatically. Starting in 2005, you had a blip that I mentioned of a food crisis in 2007 when we switched to really subsidizing ethanol. But the world realized really quickly that you didn't need to just throw everything into ethanol yeah. and backed down pretty pretty fast. Um, so you saw a net... Um, you saw a net worldwide population uh, undernourishment of from like 811-ish million in 2005 to about uh, 600 million in 2014. But in 2015, this trend kind of happened silently. People didn't really notice. And we started seeing food crises worldwide again. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the Alex Joneses of the world and stuff have are actually some of the people who have been covering this selectively to pretend sometimes that they care about people of color and then make it sound like the Davos men are destroying the world. Right. But there is a sense in which this is a capitalist uh, fuck up. Mm -hmm. And um, it was engineered by a bunch of groups separately. Um, and let's talk about why. So we've had a worldwide trend towards monopsony pricing and just-in-time production in food. For people who, if that sounds weird, yeah, even recently, even in some Gen Zers' lifetime, we did not do this. This is a very recent development. It doesn't affect the U.S. much because we produce most of our boutique vegetables in for, uh, aforementioned California. And then we have the vast middle of the country, which we produce over way too much corn with and then turn it into cow feed and ethanol. And also have a huge uh, backup niche market in uh, Central and South America, where a lot of our off-season produce comes from. If you buy, you know, grapes or you buy a tomato in uh, in December in the United States, it's most likely from Guatemala or from Peru or Chile or something like that. Right. So we we also have a very well in, in, integrated food infrastructure. Uh, with Latin America going all the way back to um, the days the, of the, the banana republics, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the United Fruit, the United Fruit Company, and the banana republics, um, very implicated in deep state stuff, by the way, which is yeah. always funny. If we ever wanted to, you and me, do a, an episode like on actual conspiracies, that would that's be one of them, like, yeah, like big time. <laughs> um, I was about to say, part of the problem that you have arguing with conspiracy theorists is you're always like, well, some of these conspiracies are true. <laughs> um, but the, the, the it is getting people to understand how to delimit them and like realize like there's no way that there's like a global cabal of five people who are using Davos to secretly control the world All through right. Soros demons. But there is a way in which we've been fucking with stuff through dirty trade deals and, oh, yeah. and deep state engineering and, you, you know, CIA members in the, in the, in the ambassador corps that are not supposed to be there. Um, so that's all very real, but what, what we saw here um, is around 2015, we actually started seeing the hunger problem tick back up again. So the malnourishment, um, went up to uh, 
Whew. Um, about uh, eight hundred something million between um, two thousand and fifteen and and twenty twenty. So uh, roughly it, back to where it had been before. Right, and most of that tick up was actually between two thousand nineteen and two thousand and twenty twenty, and that's all pre COVID. Right, stuff got worse during COVID, but the but the food system actually held out to be more robust than we thought it was going to be despite all the breakdowns everywhere. Um, now, last year, we what is, what is confounding about this is I'm going to talk about two trends that seem to contradict each other. We've had bumper wheat crops in other years. They're beginning to fail. Um, so I think in 2020, we had a bumper wheat crop, for example. Um, the reason why they're beginning to fail is explicitly climate change. And that is why you're seeing all these countries start to do export bans because they're not yeah. even able to produce enough wheat or enough palm oil or enough. And we don't use a lot of palm oil in our cooking, but if you live in anywhere else, West in the world, Africa, West yeah. Africa, Southeast Asia, palm yep. oil is everywhere. Um, the two countries, of course, that you're talking about are uh, Malaysia with the palm oil, uh, which mm -hmm. for labor, for migrant labor reasons, uh, I believe was why the palm oil couldn't be processed in sufficient numbers around Southeast Asia in order mm -hmm. to keep the basically market from failing because Malaysia cuts off its exports because it doesn't have enough to send out. And also there's so much demand coming from other countries not able to produce enough that all of a sudden their own population doesn't have enough. And then, of course, the great wheat um, banning of exports happened under uh, Modi in India, uh, right. where they've been about half their crop failed. Right. They've been having serious drought conditions, almost some Kim Stanley Robinson uh, Ministry of the Future shit coming down the pipe, too. And also this comes um, and maybe we can talk about this later. It comes on the heels of a massive victory uh, by Indian farmers, small holding farmers against Modi's government and uh, their attempt to, quote unquote, rationalize or modernize it, which basically means to like proletarianize massive amounts, massive amounts of um indian farmers 400,000 of whom co committed suicide in recent yeah. years um because basically it was an attempt to try to bring their uh massive agricultural sector into something that looks like the united states or ukraine or russia massive like latifundia with like relatively free markets without all like the massive price supports that india has like a minimum that they'll buy farmers grain for Basically, it's a class issue through and through in India. Mm -hmm. This is all a sidebar. But so India with the wheat and Malaysia with the palm oil. Right. The and we've seen other countries have export bans that are less pronounced, India being huge. Bangladesh, for example, now is scrambling from everywhere, including trying to make nice of Russia to be able to buy uh, enough wheat to feed itself. Uh, North Africa is fucked. And by the way, for people to understand this, it's not just going to show up this year. It's going to show up harder next year because the processing is really a lot of the food processing is really from the prior year's crops. Mm. So we're going to be seeing this increase. Food inflation is not going to go away. Um, it's a worldwide problem. And this is why now. Now, so let's get into this, though. Basically, the monopsony pricing game, no 
one country can truly regulate the international end of the market. And since it's not cartelized with a bunch of state actors, there has been a there's been an attempt to streamline not just production of food, but for all elements of food to be bought um, by a couple of corporations, basically about four of them. Is um, this the Archer Daniel Midlands, or are these more the um, the Kellogg's? Both. Or is it both? Okay, yeah. yeah. So it works from both ends. Right. So what we have seen is an increasing switch to a few companies who want to control all the nodes so they have monopsony pricing power on the world market, not on any national one. So a and, vertically integrated world um, yeah. food, like soup to nuts from like field all the way to the, to the, to the cereal bowl at right. the end to be able to, to have like a massive portion of that internationally against maybe like two competitors or three competitors or something. Right. So what this led to, however, uh, is um, a bunch of more breakdown nodes, just like with the housing market. So now that the more there's fewer controls, uh, things are outside of individual nations. You have a, a very small set of company buying everything around it to consolidate uh, so that it can handle all its own pricing. And I mean, this is the classic story of like U.S. steel, right. um, except on the international market. Um, and I'll be aware if you run out of steel, you don't build the skyscraper. If you run out of food, oh boy. Yeah. Um, we're only nine meals ever away from uh, an insurrection, right? Right. Um, so now you have a tendency for something called cascade failure. And this is what we're seeing. So cascade failure is where because you've centralized, you've gotten rid of redundancies, you've stripped down. And then on top of that, on top of that normal neoliberalism stuff, we decided to move as I was talking to you off air from the idea of food stores as a source of wealth to food flows, mm, flows versus stores. Where have we heard that one before? Right. Where have we been seeing other comparable supply shocks, obviously in automotive uh, and other industries where you're getting a just in time flow of goods from all different parts of the world that are arriving just as they're necessary to go into the mm -hmm. final production of something. We saw this with, uh, with chips, of course, you know, that's the big one was the, the semiconductor chips where yeah. like two thirds of the capacity was wiped out around the globe during COVID. Um, but yeah, so, so basically the, the very same principles that uh, Japanese executives devised in the 1970s in order to produce cars, we decided to do very recently with the most precious and important commodity yeah. to humanity. Hey folks, Sean KB here. Uh, just a reminder that our show relies on your support. So if you enjoy what we do and you want to hear more excellent bonus content, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash theantifada. It's cheap, there's a ton of content, and it would mean everything to us. So thank you, and we'll see you behind the paywall.